You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 665. The script is what you dreamed up. This is what it should be. The film is what you end up with. George Lucas. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters, David Goyer, from, who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, today on the show, we have writer-director Boaz Yankin. Now, Boaz has been a successful screenwriter and director in Hollywood since the early 90s. He wrote a couple of my favorite late 80s, early 90s films, The Punisher, starring Dolph Lundgren, and The Rookie, starring Charlie Sheen and Clint Eastwood. He made his directorial debut with his first film, Fresh, which he wrote and directed, and went on to direct Remember the Titans, and writing scripts like Uptown Girls, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, The Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, the blockbuster smash Now You See Me, and directing films like Safe with Jason Statham, and the family film Max, and that's just to name a few. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Boaz and just going into the weeds in regards to his creative process, the business side and politics side of screenwriting and directing in Hollywood. And to be honest, he was extremely forthcoming, raw, and honest about what it really is like working and building a very stellar career in Hollywood. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Boaz Yakin. I'd like to welcome the show, Boaz Yakin. How are you doing, Boaz? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Alex. Oh, man, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Like I was saying uh, before we got started, man, I'm a fan. I've been a fan of yours for a while of, of films you've written, 
um, films you've directed for sure. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it, I just wanted to have you on the show to talk shop, man. Thank you. I'm glad to do it. So, so, um, so first and foremost, now, how did you get into the business? Wow. Now that's a long time ago, right? Um, I, I have to only, say, you're only 25. So that's, how is that? Possible? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that for a long time. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was, um, you know, I grew up in a very, with a very theatrical family. So it's kind of a family business. My father's a teacher at Juilliard and, and a theater director. And I always had that in my life, you know. Um, and uh, in fact, I was lucky enough that when I was in high school, my dad got me into Stella Adler, the great acting teacher, Stella Adler's uh, script analysis class when I was seven, 16, 17. She never let anyone my age uh, see her classes. And that was probably the most important school I ever got, um, was hearing her break down plays from the social, economic, religious, personal perspective. And it really filled me up even as a teenager with an appreciation and a love for writing, even though it was ostensibly an acting class. And I, I thought I wanted to become an actor and I didn't get into Juilliard. And almost immediately after I went to film school, um, I went to a year of city college because my grades were so bad in high school. I had to go to city college. And then I did get into NYU for a year. And this is a long time ago. This is the 80s. Now, what I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand who are younger is that screenwriting and getting into the movies wasn't as popular of a thing back then as it is now. So, for instance, I could get into NYU with grades that were pretty shitty. Today, I would never, ever get into Tisch, like with the grades that I got into Tisch with in the 80s, right? Um, and I, uh, I remember my film teacher, one of my film teachers, gave a course uh, a few days of how to get into the movie business. And it was all about, like, you know, getting into a production company and working in internships and all this kind of stuff. And I have to say I had a panic attack because I hate real work. Um, and I kind of attacked him after class and I was like, dude, what do you do to be a movie director? I can't listen to all this production company stuff. And he was nice enough. He said, let me take you out to lunch. And he took me out to lunch and he told me that a lot of directors start out as writers or as editors. And I said, I can do that. Right. So I actually wrote a screenplay on my spare time when I was a sophomore at NYU and my dad knew a guy who knew a guy, you know, and I sent him the script. And next thing I knew, an agent from L.A. was calling me up saying, I, I want to I think I can option your script. Um, and he did. He optioned it. Um, and I optioned it to a producer who had at the time was already older and had produced some big films like uh, he had produced The Exorcist and a couple of things. And, and I optioned the script and I ended up moving to Hollywood at like 20, 19 years old, actually, I left school and I, I was terrified, but I came out here to work um, and I started a career very, very young. I didn't, the script never got made, da, 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 but it got me in the door. It took a while for me to get stuff made, but I got in the door and I started working. That must have been like 1986 or something. <laughs> so the, the film um, that you wrote, your first produced credit that I saw which is um, because during that time, 88, 89, I was working at a video store. I was, I was still in high school. So between basically between 87 to 93, 
I'll go head to head with anybody in Trivial Pursuit as far as film, film, filmographies are concerned. So you made a few films, uh, or you've written a few films during that time that that hit me. One of them being you wrote the first Punisher. Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, it was it was that. rewritten rewritten by the producer. It would have been a lot better if it hadn't been, but. Um... That's a a theme of the show, I hear. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, sometimes your shit isn't that good and someone else makes it better. I mean, that's happened to me once or twice, but but that time it was just, uh, um, but yeah, I was very young. I was like 22 and I pitched them the Punisher idea. Um, No one was making superhero movies at that time, in fact, Um, you know, and uh, and it got made. It got made. Um, So you actually uh, went in and pitched the Punisher and then then they went, they called up marvel and said hey can we get the rights to make yeah and remember at the time marvel no one was making marvel movies they were making like captain america and like weird rubber suits so bad like and it was like you know so no one was making marvel movies um basically yeah i i pitched the punisher to this mentor of mine who who was a producer as well as a writer and took it over to new line or new new world new world pictures not new (laughs) new world pictures um and they went for it and I wrote it. Um, and what was interesting was that a lot of the, at the time, the concern was it was too comic booky, right? Meaning that like he had a skull on the shirt and all the stuff. So they, they changed a bunch of that stuff. And then very shortly afterwards, the Batman film that Tim Burton did yeah. came out and sort of right. They were all around the same exact time or right afterwards. And it sort of changed the game in terms of what people were willing to do and how they were willing to approach it. Um, but yeah, that was my first produced credit. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, and that's for people not around at that time in 1989, which is an amazing year for films, you couldn't walk the street without seeing a bat signal somewhere. Yes, that's right. It It became very, very big. It was everywhere. And, and it's so funny, like, oh, it's a little, Punisher's a little too comic booky, but because Batman's not comic booky at all. <laughs> no, they really went for it with that with that version of the film, and that kind of opened things up for people a lot. Um, yeah, and that's uh, that's something that a lot of screenwriters starting out have to understand is when you are, and even when you're more established, you once you sell that script, unless you're a producer and or director on it. The powers you kind of let go. It's like you put it out no, to see. You know, I, I've. I mean, obviously, I've I've managed to move into directing after some years and and all that. But one thing that I always at the time when I was young, and I wrote scripts, I found it very painful to like write something and then have it taken away and completely reworked by somebody else. At this point in my life, when I'm writing a quote-unquote studio-type film or something like that. I just, for it's been years now, I just want to do a draft or two and then please fire me and take it. And, and like, you basically know that unless two or three other people rewrite your script, it's not going to get made. Right. Um, so when you're dealing with more personal films, with independent films, that's a completely separate story. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing in the studio system, you do a lot better for your health and mental well-being, understanding that you're part of a factory 
that there is zero personal element involved, that you have to just be willing to like do your best as a craftsman and a professional, which doesn't mean you're not doing good work, right? It, it just means that you're treating it as a craftsman and as a professional and hope that whatever combination of elements comes together and that they go make it somehow and that you make some money. But as a young person, you have this dream as a writer, whatever, that somehow your voice is meaningful and that the film's going to reflect with it. Forget about it. Um, so, you know, that that's definitely a learning experience, I think, that, that screenwriters go through. Yeah, because everyone thinks, like, oh, I'm going to be Sorkin or I'm going to be Tarantino. First script out. I'm like, well, but don't forget that, that Quentin directs his own movies. He's a filmmaker, right? Um, P.T. Anderson directs his own movies. Wes Anderson directs his own movies. Right. If, if you're going to be a script writer, it's a whole different story. Maybe Aaron Sorkin, you know, some of it, you know, he was also, for the most part, someone who did television, right? I mean, he did a few features, right? But his his real his real kind of claim to fame is television. And in television, the writers came, um, which is very different than feature films. That right. is a different world. When we talk about TV, and now TV is much bigger, right? Like Netflix, like the writer and the writer's room and the executive producer is, is a different story. In movies, the writer is not in the same position as the writer is in, in, in television. So then after The Punisher, you did another one of my favorite films of that time period, which is The Rookie. Uh, oh. with, uh, hey, listen, man. It was, in my mind... It's it hard was, for me to, to talk about these things, you know what I mean? But like, okay, <laughs> why not? Listen, listen. And the rookie, in my mind, I remember it fondly. I don't, I don't want to watch it again <laughs> right now because I, I love the memory that I have of it. And it, you know, start, start uh, Clint Eastwood and a, a young, uh, a young Charlie Sheen. So it was, it was a Warner Brothers film. It was a, it was a studio project. Yeah, and look, I, I have to say, I'm grateful, immensely grateful for it, in the sense that, like, first of all, it was, I was 23 years old. It was. <laughs> A lot of money. And not just that, Clint was incredibly generous with me um, and allowed me to watch him direct the whole film. I was there behind the, the, the monitor the whole time. I never spoke. Um, but I got to watch his process. I got to see the way he ran a set. I got to understand the way he set up shots and constructed sequences. And it was an incredible film school for me. It, it, it was probably the greatest film school I've, I've ever had was just to sit behind Clint and watch him direct the whole film. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of actually, as I've learned, there's not a lot of filmmakers that would even allow a writer on set for more than two minutes um, or two days, you know. And the fact that as long as I shut up, he let me sit there and just watch every day was was really something. And when I directed my first film, so many of the lessons that I learned from from Clint Eastwood were there. So I'm forever grateful for it. And it's so funny because I was talking on the show to John Lee Hancock, who also did a movie with Clint called The Perfect World, and he did the exact, exact same thing he did with John Lee. I was just like, now I'm hearing it, and, and it, I'm hearing these stories as I'm talking to people who've worked with him. He does that for writers. And, he, and again, you and John, well, just writers. You weren't directors yet. Yeah, and he's he's very generous and and very giving. Um, and the thing that was really interesting about watching him direct, um, one of the things that's amazing and and really was something I learned from aside from the creative aspect was how drama free Clint is, right. and how much he likes a drama free environment, and how little he'll tolerate 
you know, excessive, you know, emotions and like, and, and, and I appreciated that. I, I love a quiet professional environment without drama, without bullshit, you know, and I've had it because I'm not Clint and people create that, you know, um, but it, as an aspirational work environment, it, it really did teach me a lot. Um, the other thing that's interesting about, and I know this is about writing, but but that, that's really great about watching Clint work is that Clint does very, very little planning, right? Like sometimes he'd show up on the set and it would be, he, he, or he'd go on a location scout and he'd see the set for the first time on the location scout. And he would basically plan out how to do a scene on the way to work, right? He didn't have a lot of shot lists, no storyboards, no nothing. And what that did was it created a, an environment where essentially you're watching the person construct the scene right in front of you, right? There's nothing more boring than to watch a director who's coming in with all of his planning and all the storyboards and everything. And you're basically watching something that's completely pre-planned. I mean, it can be fantastic, right? But with Clint, you really got to watch him create the scene on the spot. So you learned. And what was interesting for me was that, like, after a few weeks, I could literally tell you where he was going to put the camera next from, like, and be right 25 to 30% of the time. Like, because I started to understand the process of how something was constructed. Um, you know, and it, it really was an incredible film school in that particular way. That's amazing. That's amazing. And he did. He directed. He directed the rookie too, right? Yeah, he, he starred and directed it. Yeah. He directed, yeah, because uh, well, we could talk about Clint for hours, um, but that's a whole other. That's a whole other show for another episode. Yeah. Um, now, how did you make your jump? Because I, I know a lot of screenwriters listening. They're like, I want to direct. How did you make that jump from that to Fresh, which is your directorial debut? Well, what really happened was, you know, I am. Um, you know, when you're young and, and kind of like your life is like that John Favreau movie in L.A. What was that, Swingers, that movie? Swingers. Swingers. It is Swingers. Swingers. Swingers, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like th that's literally what it was like to be 20-something in Los Angeles at, at that time. And you, I didn't even enjoy that movie because I was just kind of like. This is my life. It's it boring. Literally like what happens when I walk outside. You know, now you watch it and you're like, oh, it's super entertaining. And then, you know, but at the time it was just like, well, fuck this shit. Like, you know, um, but. But anyway, that, that's it, pretty much exactly what our lives were like. So I had a, a number of friends that I was making at the time, right? And um, a couple of my best friends was like this this guy called Scott Spiegel, um, who co-wrote Evil Dead 2 uh, with yeah. Sam Raimi. Mm -hmm. And my friend Lawrence Bender, who was just an aspiring producer at the time. And and I had put them together. I, I knew them separately. And, and they made Lawrence produce this little horror movie Scott yeah. did, Intruder, right? Right. And after The Rookie got made. Honestly, I had gotten to a place, which is, by the way, still what I struggle with all the time in this creative field that we're in, is that, you know, I started out trying to write commercial films and action films and all that, but I, I very quickly, so quickly, because I was only barely 23, realized that's not very much what I wanted to do at all with my life. And, and actually, I decided to quit the business and go live in Paris and, and write a book like like a, that most young Americans ought to try and do. Um, but before I left, I put together a Scotty and my friend Lawrence, and I had met Quentin Tarantino through my friend Sheldon. And both Scotty and I were like, I was like, you've got to meet Scotty. And, and Scotty actually ended up becoming friendly with Lawrence. 
And he introduced Lawrence to Quentin. And so while I'm in Paris, Lawrence and Quentin went away and made reservoir dogs. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, and I really had wanted to leave the business and so on. And I did write my book that never got published. And um, when I came back, Lawrence and Quentin had finished the movie and it had gotten some kind of like some real hype behind it. And it was Lawrence who pulled me back in. Lawrence was kind of like, Boaz, if you write a script, I think that we make can make for a low enough budget. Uh, I think I can get the money for it. And so I spent a half a year or however long researching and, and writing fresh. It took me a while of that one. Um, it took us a while to find they found some French financing and, and we made the movie. But th- that's that's how it came together. It was actually Lawrence who pulled me back in after I, I was going to quit, you know. Um, yeah, and, and from what I heard is Lawrence that that um, as legend goes, Lawrence is the one that told Quentin, "Hey, give me a minute. I'm gonna see if I can find money." He's like, "Nah, nah. I'm just gonna go just to the fifty grand with some friends on the weekend." And it, that's why that's, I wrote that, it. That's, that's actually true. Lawrence connected with Monty Hellman and with um, I think Lawrence pulled in Harvey Keitel. He said, "Give me a little time," and he pulled in Harvey Keitel and, and managed to make the movie for like a million and something rather than thirty, forty thousand. So yeah, Lawrence was Lawrence was instrumental in that. Now, um, one of the films that you directed that I absolutely adore, and I've seen a just a ton of times, is Remember the Titans. It was just such a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, how did you get involved with that? Because you didn't write that one, right? You were just a, a director for that. One? I mean, I did rewrites, but no, I but, look. It was I had made. I had made Fresh. Um, I made a, a movie about a frustrated Hasidic housewife with Renee. Uh, Weger called uh, a price above always a popular genre. Um, <laughs> yes, box office, box office gold, sir. <laughs> box office gold, frustrated Hasidim. Um, although they did a really good one on Netflix this this year that that got a lot of attention. I have to say, um, okay. called uh, what was it called? Unreligious or or something? That, okay. I don't remember. Anyway, Shira Haas was fantastic in it. Anyway, but um. I was actually in a position where I was having a hard time, as I always find myself, a hard time getting anything made. Uh, the Bruckheimer people reached out to me about the movie. And frankly, I would, you know, the, the truth of the situation is this. Um, none of the big directors that they wanted to for that movie were willing to do it because Disney was only giving him a very limited budget. So the usual Bruckheimer suspects, you know, Tony Scott, people like that were just like, I'm not going to do this. I don't. I don't so get. I don't get up for less than 100. Million. He was doing what he does sometimes, which is he then looks for like an independent, whatever, someone that he can bring in. And I needed a job. Um, I had no interest in making a football film or a Disney film, and you know. But I recognized that if I didn't try and do something like that, um, that I was going to be in trouble. And I kind of auditioned for it. I, I the script was like 140 pages long. And then one weekend, I kind of cut 40 pages out and restructured things and showed it to them. And they were like, OK, you've got the job. Um, and I went and I, and, and I made it. It, it. I wish I had been less conflicted about it and enjoyed the process more. Um, it was very challenging to make a film that became like by far the most successful film I could have made. And it was the film I was least interested in in many ways at the same time, you know, and that's always a blow in some way. I wish I had handled it better and with a little bit more fun and, and grace. But I, I, it's 
it's sort of what what ended up happening. Yeah, and it was a and it was a fairly big hit. I remember um, it was a huge hit, and 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 it's it's very watchable till this day. So absolutely, uh, yeah. I mean, I could turn it on with my girls and we just watch it. Just it's just such a and it's and there's yeah. that. That you know the, the twist, the heartbreaking scene, and you're just like, oh my god! Like there's so emotion, so much emotion in that. And what was it like working with Denzel on that project? You know, directing it. it, it once you're you're, you're you've got two you got two two features under your belt at that point, right? And then yeah, two small features. Right. So then you got Denzel. Who was Denzel at that time? He was still Denzel. He was Denzel. He wasn't Denzel post Titans and post uh, Training Day, which he made next. Right. right. Those two movies, one two punch, really solidified Denzel as like the major star. But at the time he he still was, you know, he still was Denzel Washington. And um, you know, I it I can't say that it's like I direct I, you basically just where are you gonna be, you know, and then okay, let's make sure I'll we get the close up and the medium shot. And uh but you know, we he he knew what he was doing to an extremely high degree. Sure. Um, I think he was seeing the same movie as as I was, you know, and and so it it went pretty smoothly in that regard. Now, let me ask you: when you when you write, do you start with character or do you start with plot? I always love to ask that question. I think well, I always start with character, um, always except, I mean, even except for when I'm trying to come up with a more commercial. Hollywood type idea. And then sometimes you think about plot. Now, of course, plot always involves character in the sense of there's this guy or this gal who does this, and this is their problem. This is what they're trying to solve. Oh, it's about a spy who fell out of the sky. You know, I don't know. It's always a character. It's always a human being. But, you know, with a more sort of quote unquote commercial ideas, you know, you tend to think more of the situation. Um, you know, and, and, and I think with more personal work, you think more about the emotional and kind of the social emotional situation that the person's in. Um, but it, it does always start with, with the character. Now, what, um, what advice would you give writers who, to, on how to write a good protagonist? Uh, something that, like, that could drive that story. Wow. I mean, that's such a personal, kind of a thing, you know? I mean, I, I don't even know how to advise someone on something like that, not not being evasive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, I guess, I mean, again, it's different when you're writing a studio film and when you're writing a personal kind of a piece. It's, it's quite different, although maybe certain similar rules apply in terms of not being boring and, and so on. Um, but I, I think a strong connection to what that person wants and mm-hmm. needs, or at least what that person's searching for, even if it's unspecific, right? Because, I mean, I think that, that that's the thing that I think is sort of frustrating about trying to write commercial films, or is that, you know, people are always asked to kind of come up with a very specific want or need or desire that somebody has, and, and if a person isn't driven in a particular direction, people have very little patience for it. Whereas I find that a lot of times human beings, right, we are in an ambivalent state and that a lot of stories that are interesting to me are about ambivalent people who are in a particular cycle of their lives. And somehow something happens to them in that space that moves them into recognizing what it is that they are 
needing or wanting or connecting to and so on. But I, I always find myself starting from a very ambivalent state. Uh, and I think it makes for interesting pieces, but it, it makes for pieces that take more patience in the opening stages for a, an audience to get into. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect yeah. sense. One area that I, that is not really talked about enough, I think, with screenwriters, and I think this is where screenwriters and filmmakers, for that matter, get sideswiped in our business, is the politics behind the scenes, the stuff that you have to deal with about how to get that, how to get a script financed, how to how to deal with personalities, how to deal with ego, how to deal with agendas. Do you have any advice? Because obviously you've been able to navigate these waters. Not so well all the time. No, no, no. no, no. I mean, when you think about the fact that I've been in the film business for 30 years, like the amount of scripts that I've actually had out there that got made or that, you know, hey, the most personal work I've done, I've paid for myself. Like the two, like the movie I just made of Viva, this other movie I made that's very dark and painful and personal, Death and Love, I paid for them with my life savings. No one financed them. Wow. Um, you know, and not not a lot of people do that. Um, and the last one I did before that, this little strange little kitsch horror movie thing I did called Boarding School, like I, I paid for a, a ton of it. Um, not all of it, but for a ton of it. Um, and it, it's it's very like it, it, it's it is very challenging and you know making a movie even a lower budget movie that that's the thing right that that's the thing that's so difficult with our business right is that it takes so much money to make a movie even if it's a small film right even if it's a few even if you're talking about a mic what they call a micro budget movie hey $150,000 in the real world is a fuckload of money right We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And people don't want to give you their $150,000 any more than some big company wants to give you $15 million, right? And everyone wants to know there's going to be a return on their investment and da, da, da. And it makes for a completely uncreative, not risk-taking not kind of encouraging exploration environment, especially here in the States where you have no funding from like the government or anything like that, right? So there is no Lars von Trier here. There is no, there is no Thomas Vinterberg here, right? Like it, it, there are good filmmakers here, right? The Coens are incredible. Mm-hmm. But somehow that filmmaker has to find the zeitgeist that, that works. They have to fit their work into an environment that makes a certain amount of money, right? And they have to, you can't really explore and fuck up and discover the way you can in other art forms, the way writers can or painters can or even musicians can, right? And it makes for a very boring array of work. Um so when you talk about politics and trying to get your stuff work, like I would easily say that 90%, 95% of what I think the most interesting stuff I've written is never got to the light of day. Now, am I saying it's great or that, da, da, da? No, not at all. It's interesting, though. 
And that doesn't really cut it in our particular field because people have to feel they're going to make money off it. Um, so it's challenging. And if you want to be a script writer and if you want to sell your work and if you want to be, you know, you have to make sure your work can fit stars in it still till this day and that actors who have some kind of a name are going to want to do it. It has to sort of fit cleanly into some kind of a genre that people feel they can make money from. Um, and, uh, you know, anything that isn't that is very infrequent. Right. And even when you were coming up, I mean, look, can you imagine Taxi Driver or Raging Bull getting financed today? I mean, no, no. The difference is, I mean, no, we all know that like movies with the actual budget that feature, you know, production value and all that, that you could make with certain stars and all that in the late 60s, 70s, very early 80s, that, that doesn't exist anymore. They take more chances with streaming shows and things like, you know, the taxi driver of then became the Breaking Bad of today, right? Where you have, you know, but I will say this, as much as they take chances and they have like, you know, dark protagonists and things like that, Right. All started by The Sopranos, I suppose. Right. Like and, and all that. The fact that these things need to go on for three, four years. To me, inherently saps them. Of for me personally, of a genuine creative perspective. So not creative. Or I guess it's such a silly word, artistic or, or something I, like that. I understand what you're like, saying. Like there like, are there there's those film there's those shows that just go 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 go. But something like Breaking Bad, who this uh, Vince actually said, it this is this is the arc. It's five seasons. This is how long I wanted. Yeah, to I mean five fucking seasons of it. Like I mean it's a good right. But after a few episodes, you're like I get it. He's Breaking Bad. I mean what more do you need? Like what can you say in five? years that you that godfather two couldn't say in about three hours and i'm not saying you know <laughs> and I, I don't know so and and by its nature it becomes diluted there's like a ton of directors even if some of them are very good there's a writer's room filled with writers the different vibes it's a, different it's, a, it's, it's a it's a product of some kind it can be wonderful it, it can be a great show that people love like the wire or whatever but it's still a product, a corporate product, whereas there is still something to an individual film, you know, whether you're watching, you know, The Master by T.T. Anderson or Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes or something where you go. It's a piece. It's of a piece. It, it, it's complete in its vision, its perspective. It says what it wants to say. And that's it, you know. That that day is close to being done. And it was certainly easier in, in the 80s. It was already getting more difficult than it was in the 70s and in the 60s. Um, but now I, I think it's completely shifted. Well, I mean, if you look, if you look at, well, first of all, I, I think that one thing you said, the product television is as close to a product as we can create in our industry. Because, you know, like that bottle you're drinking from right now, that's a product. It's a yeah. bottle. It's a price. You make it for a certain cost, and you get certain you get you know markup, and that's it. Television is the closest thing we have to that. That's why they just keep pumping them out because you can keep pumping out product, product, product. Yeah, and with you get some super talented people doing it. Oh, there's and, no question. And making high level writing, high level work. Absolutely. And yet, there's something about it. <laughs> no, I get, I get you. 
But if you look, you were saying that, you know, you were mentioning West and, and PT and these guys. I'm noticing that films that actually get some budget, have some star power, is rarely the young, unknown uh, directors anymore, or even the young, you know, maybe have one or two. It's the Cohen. They, they, it's the guys that came up in the 90s, in the early 2000s, that had those, they came in at that right time, and they're, they're, they've got the keys to the castle to keep doing that. Well, I mean, Woody did it for... I well, you know what happens now? Um, what happens now, it, it's sort of like, you know, it's what happened with, like, because the corporate structure has, has become so overwhelming, like, right, like, you can't be a rock, like, you can't be the clash anymore and, like, <laughs> Do four or five out, and then finally, like the media realizes, oh shit, the Clash is awesome, and then put them on a tour with the Who, who are already bloated and all that stuff, and then the Clash basically fall apart. But they've had like five fucking Clash albums before they, you know, they rock the Casbah on every commercial, and it's done, right? Right. Now, if someone does something successful for two seconds, Disney, like they jump on these kids. And some kid who just did like, you know, a great first Sundance movie or whatever it is, the next thing that you know is they're directing like some gigantic Marvel movie They've been or, or a Jurassic Park or whatever it is. And that's also what people want. Like people are starting to approach this idea of making their first film or whatever as this sort of like entree into like making <laughs> corporate product. And so you get good first films still but you almost never get the second film or third or fourth or right fifth. it's like if you went and made reservoir dogs and the next thing he did was direct you know captain marvel whatever you would have never gotten pulp fiction right never um and that's the difference is that people are still making reservoir dogs here and there or you know their versions of it but no one's doing the second one and the third one and the fourth one that really allows a voice to grow. That's what was happening. That P.T. Anderson, Wes Anderson, Quentin the Cohen's huge. I mean, they're the best American filmmakers, right, right now. Like, today, you do one thing that's good, and the corporations are just all over you, and it's super tempting. You can't blame somebody, and it's getting harder and harder to get financing for second and third films, right? So, essentially, it's almost like a little beauty contest making that first films like this little beauty contest so that you get picked up by the corporations and, and actually, it sucks no and it's really good so like right now so if today joel and ethan bust out blood simple then the net they're they're on a netflix series or they're they're doing a marvel film yes. or or they're doing yeah. a, a, a gritty star wars show i mean it's yeah. we don't get and, crazy and, 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 and what's kind of I don't mean to go dark with it, but what's kind of depressing is how much what once was like a cineast and kind of like film lover community right. has basically been co-opted by the corporations into becoming this sort of geek community that just like will argue about, you know, how big oh. Thor Hammer should be or whatever it is. And they genuinely care about this stuff. Whereas once that type of person was caring about, you know, what the next Scorsese movie was or, 
what the next Terrence, you know, Terrence Malick movie was. And, and now it's become this kind of, I don't know what you even call it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, look, it's a different thing. I mean, it's, it's the, basically now people listening like, oh, these two old farts are just talking about the good old days. No, I, 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 we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I enjoy it's like the, the thing that, that that I find difficult is that it's not like is that people have the priorities are so weird. It's like people aren't looking at like these gigantic entertainment. Like we used to look at these gigantic studio entertainment movies, whether it was Indiana Jones or whatever in the day. It's like, oh, man, this is so much fun. I'm, I'm like, this is so much fun. It's so entertaining. This is great like fun product, but I'm going to put my attention into something else. My attention, my critical faculties, <laughs> my discernment, my, my real focus into something else as both a fan, a critic, uh, uh, you know, a creative person. Right, right. But that level, I mean, that level of attention paid to stuff that's essentially well-made version of McDonald's hamburgers. It's like, and the kind of discussion that that gets is what has flipped from the way things used to be. Um, so anyway, just two old folks sitting around. Two old folks talking about Listen, I, I mean, but there's still the Criterion Collection for the rest of us. Uh, and we get to, and we get to do that still. And, and I remember, like, I had my laser disc. And I had, you know, with, with Scorsese commentary and Coppola commentary on Dracula. And, and I'm listening to that. And, and that's the cinephile in it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just a different world, and there's nothing that's but wrong or bad about it. It's different. I have to admit that as an American, I mean, not to be like, but America bothers me. Like, my brother and I just did this deep dive again into, like, Hayao Miyazaki's entire, mm-hmm. you know, oeuvre or smorgasbord or smorgasbord. So, you know, he's a genius of some kind, right? And he's a genius. And he is a popular filmmaker. I mean, he is the Disney of Japan. Like he is the Spielberg and Disney wrapped up into one of Japan. All over the world, his movies are like enormous. And in the States, finally, because of like they're on Disney Plus or whatever, you know, people have finally seen a little of them, but no one talks about him here, right? Like that that that's not what people do here. I'm not saying it's not possible to make beautiful popular films. But I just feel like our particular culture and our particular filmmaking culture is 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 pretty frustrating. I get it. I get it. One hundred and ten percent. I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, and we can keep going down this path for for okay. No, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go go down another path. What, what, right. what, other, what, what path would you like to go down? So now the you actually wrote a sequel to a, a beloved classic called Dirty Dancer, and you did Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Now. I particularly liked, I liked it a lot because I'm Cuban by, you know, by birth. Well, so, you really got talking about things I'd rather not talk about sometimes. <laughs> listen, listen I, I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun uh, wa- okay. wa- watching that. Glad you did. <laughs> I mean, apparently I'm the only one is what you're saying. <laughs> I think you're like the only one. I, like, I, I find it very difficult that it's on my IMDb page. And when I do, 
And, and, and when I do something else, people are always like, oh, the guy who wrote Dirty Dancing, too. And you're like, I did a fucking rear, you know. Um, I, I, <laughs> I just, you know what I kind of wish? I, I know I, I come off like the crankiest person in the world. Um, and I'm not really. But what, here's something that's difficult. Talking about screenwriting, by the way. Sure, sure, go ahead. As script writers, we have to make a living, mm-hmm. right? And I say this, you know, in full, like, we have to make a living. There are a few brilliant people like Quentin or PT or whatever that everything they like to do is what other people like to see. And they manage to, like, write. A lot of us have to make a living because the stuff that we make, our independent stuff isn't as successful, blah, blah, blah. You've got to keep a roof over your head, right? And what you can't do as a filmmaker is have a non plume, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have a non plume Like when I do rewrites for Jerry or for whatever, my name is, you know, J- Jack Ryan, you know? And when I do my own stuff, it's Boaz Yakin because there's a lot of egos involved and a lot of people's pride involved, right? And so like, if you're going to do a rewrite for a producer, on a project, and, and everyone, if, hey, my name is good enough to be on this movie. What your name? You, it's not good enough for you, you know. Uh-huh. Larry McMurtry said something really interesting in this book about script writing. He wrote called Film Flam. <laughs> I've heard um, of it. Yeah. You know, and it's like a series of essays about filmmaking. He's a fantastic novelist, is right, and he's written some beautiful scripts. That's not really been his focus, but so he has some interesting and always funny and, and, and biting stories about Hollywood. And the thing that he says, it's so interesting for anyone who takes script meetings or, or tries to get jobs as a screenwriter or whatever, is that there's this sort of illusion in our business that you need to be passionate about the material that you're working on, right? That like, when you're going to take that writing job for that script about the dog who flies and saves the day, that... You can't come in there and say, yeah, you know, I'd like to do this because I, I I just got a kid and I need to build an addendum to the house and I could really use that $150,000. So, yeah, I'm down to write the story about the dog with the cake, right? You have to come in there and be like, you know, when I was a kid, I had a dog and, and, and you know, and the dog died when I was 14 and I really, that dog meant so much to me. And I can really identify with this material. I think it's going to speak to everyone who loves it, right? Right. And as Larry McMurtry says, some of the worst work ever done has been done by people passionate about that work. And some really incredible work has been done by professionals who, you know, decided to who decided to do something because they needed to pay the rent and put their craft and an and imagination and intelligence to it and fucking knocked it out. Right. Like um like whoever wrote I don't know. Anyway, I'm not going to get into specifics, but there's a lot of very good commercial work that's been done by people who did it with a sense of commitment and 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 intelligence and and professionalism, but not because they were dying to tell that particular fucking story, right? And I think that that sort of illusion that we need to create that we're so passionate about everything we do because otherwise you won't get hired. Mm-hmm basically puts people in a situation where a lot of the work 
that you see like a lot of, you know, and a name on a script, like whether it's Dirty Dancing 2 or whatever it is, it's like, yeah, you know, you did a job. There were four writers on it. What your what that piece ended up being has very little to do with what you actually wrote. You maybe recognize three words of it and some structural changes that you put into it that were deemed significant enough by the Writers Guild Committee to, to give you a credit, right? Um, and you're happy about it because it means you get residuals and you got a credit and it means you might get another job, right? But does it reflect you as a creative person? No. And you could argue, well, then don't do the jobs that don't reflect you as a creative person, right? If that's going to be something difficult for you later on in life, don't do that job. Don't do things that you don't believe in. I get that point of view. I know people who haven't done it and have done well. I know people who haven't done it and are like out of the business. Um, and for me, it's always been this sort of juggling act of trying to find a way to do things that I like to do that really do reflect my perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and things that you go, fuck, if I don't make some money this year, I'm fucked. Oh, you know, this thing? Yeah, sure. I'm down. I know how to do that. Right. And, and, and that's the thing that being a professional, you know what I mean? I love I love that you're bringing this up because it is a almost a myth that the struggling artist that's so passionate about everything they do. And you know what? I'm, of course, you know, at a certain level, your private things and things that you do are at that. Like, I'm passionate and passionate. But man, when I was coming up, I would take jobs directing stuff that I'm like, I don't want. Oh, God. You know, or I would do po I would do posts, and I'm like, I don't even I, I don't even want my name on this thing, you know. But it was it was a, it was a paycheck, and you have to do, and that's what a professional is. Yes, like you said, there are those few geniuses who get to do both, but that those are anomalies. You know, the Cohen brothers are an anomaly. <laughs> P.T. Anderson's an anomaly. Wes Anderson's an anomaly. Tarantino's an anomaly. These guys are anomalies in our business. So for the rest of us, sometimes you got to take jobs that you might not be happy with or do something else or figure another way out to tell your stories. I mean, I know the Duplass brothers, they just dropped their budgets down to a place where like I could do whatever the hell I want. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And they just go out and do it. Great. If that's the kind of storytelling you want to do and that makes you happy as an artist, great. I mean, I heard the story when the, the Duplass brothers were brought into Marvel. And they were offered a movie, and they're like, "Yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're we don't want to do that because they understood what was that going to be entailed, like you like we kind of talked about today. But that is a myth that needs to be broken. That you like, it's all about the passion, and like it is about the passion. But man, you got to eat sometimes, man. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I it, I just made a film that really was that. I I mean, I I basically I lucked out. In the sense that this movie that I wrote, I, every once in a while I, I write something that I'm like, I have to write. So I wrote this piece, a dance movie about the, this thing called Aviva, about the, the difficulty in being both in your masculine and feminine self and the struggle in that regard. So I did a story about a couple where I had four actors playing two people, a man and a woman playing each of the two characters. It's a dance movie. It's a sex movie. I mean, it's it's frontal. It's so much sex and dance and, and experimental. So 500, so 500, million, 500 million worldwide uh, box office. Exactly. <laughs> I I uh, and you know what? I I got a surprise check from 
years ago from this little comedy I made for from uh, for MGM called Uptown Girls, yeah. where like 15 years later, money that I didn't realize I was owed suddenly came to me. Wow. And I was like, I'm making my movie. And I just took that money and I put it into making this movie. And I made it. And I and I love it. It's unique. It's different. It's personal. Mm -hmm. If I had $20 million, I would just make 20 of these things and not give a shit who saw them or who didn't. But I don't. <laughs> so after you make one of those things, suddenly you're like, oh, fuck, what do I do? I guess I got to find a way to pay the bills again. To, to pay the bills and to make sure that I can make another film or whatever it is. So it's it's this constant dance, you know? And, and so, uh, what I love about you, uh, Blas, and what you're, because again, from if someone just looks at your IMDb, they're just like, oh, well, he's this and he's, he's doing that. And you're just like, look, man, I, I paid for this myself. I'm an artist. I'm still, I'm still hustling. I'm, you're still doing it the way you want to do it. The, the normal, the normal mind, and I always tell this, Filmmakers and screen, we're sick. We're, we're, we've been infected. Um, it, it's a horrible disease that we have uh, because it, it lies dormant for years sometimes and then comes back up. The normal human being would have seen that check and said, oh, good, I could put it away. I may have some security. Maybe I can invest it. You said, I can make my movie. <laughs> That's what I love about that. I love about you. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I think the other thing that is very Again, we're not talking about our outlier filmmakers who both do exactly what they want to do and get fun funding for it and all that. But I think that a real hole that people fall into, and maybe it's good. I, I think in some ways maybe I should have done a little bit more of it, but it always freaked me out, is that when you find a way that you're successful, you make remember the Titans or whatever, the next thing you're offered is like, 10 big sports movies or like another job. And I had that opportunity after that movie and I kind of freaked out and I was like, but this isn't who I am. This isn't what I want to do. And if I go down this road, I don't think I'll ever remember who I really am. So I pulled back and tried to do my own thing with moderate levels of success um, rather than, you know, pursue the thing that's most comfortable and that makes me the most money. And I'm not, advising it to anyone. I'm not advising it to anyone. Um, but I am proud of the fact that at my age and after doing this for a long time, I'm still, when I can pull it together, experimenting and trying things I've never tried before and trying to do things that are off the beaten path rather than just sort of perfecting this thing that I quote unquote know how to do over and over and over and over again may be great for some people and some people may be creatively inclined in that way but i find that very uninteresting um you know so. but what i what i respect about what you're talking about what you're saying what you're doing is that you're still willing at this stage in your career that you've been in the business for a long time you've done a bunch of stuff you're still taking the swing at the bat you're still taking the swing at the at the bay, at the bay, where a lot of guys and a lot of a lot of professionals who are at this point in their career they just want to stay safe I'm just going to do, I'm going to do the sports. I know movie. people who want to stay safe the minute they do their first thing that does well. Okay. I, I've known a lot of people like that. 
Um, honestly, now that I'm getting older and I'm like starting to look at that, like, oh my God, wouldn't it be nice just to be on a beach in Hawaii for the rest of my fucking life and stop with this shit? <laughs> now I'm like, going, oh my God, what am I, an idiot? Like, what, you know, I, I turned down how much? Like a million dollars, like, you know, like I, it would have been nice to have some money to buy that fucking house in Hawaii, right? Um, instead, I made this artsy ass movie that no one's ever going to see. Uh, <laughs> So it is, it is, it's a mixed bag, but you know, the truth is if someone dropped a check on me tomorrow, I would turn around and make another movie with it. Right. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't buy a fucking house in Hawaii. So right. maybe but that's someday. The but that's the sickness. That is the sickness of being an artist, you know, and being a brave artist because there's artists who are brave and artists who aren't brave and you are a brave artist. No question about it. Now, you know, I was going to ask you about Prince of Persia. Was that something? To rewrite. It's a rewrite. Okay. So yeah, you... I mean, and actually, I love, I, I became really good friends with the guy who created the video game and wrote the first drafts, right? But that's very much an example of what I'm talking about in the Hollywood world, right? Like, right. there was a video game. Bruckheimer bought the video game and hired Jordan, who's a wonderful guy, to write the original script. Then they hired another writer to rewrite Jordan's script. Then they brought me on to rewrite the third writer's, the second writer's script. I did a bunch of work on it, a couple of drafts, and then went, I think this is what I got for you guys. And then they hired two other guys to come on, a writing team, to come on, and they wrote the rest of the way for like the, the next year and a half. The movie comes out, and it's like six people have written on it. I guess they decided that what I did had enough of left in it to have a credit. And that's a credit that you have, you know, and, and it's interesting because people say, oh, you wrote Prince of Persia, right? And you're like, yeah, I mean, I guess. Is there two words in that thing that I did? I, I, you know, I don't even think so. But that's what that particular machine is. You make money. You get residuals. You get health benefits. This is the reality, dude. This is the reality of, of being a writer. And, and, and you cannot fucking complain about that. I mean, how many jobs are there in this world? Right. Other than these fucking Elon Musk types, right? But how many jobs are there in this world that you work on something for a few months, you make hundreds of thousands of dollars, you get health benefits. If it does well later in ancillary markets, you keep getting checks every year for a few thousand dollars that you, whoa, I didn't really, oh, you say, Bo, I was, you know, $20,000 for Prince of Persia came in five years later, right? Fucking amazing, right? So it's a factory. It's a machine. You do it to make a living. And that's, you know, I'll never get another job again, I'm sure, if any one of these people listens to this. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe, or maybe you'll get the right job. I'll, I don't know. I think I think people know I think this, which is why sometimes I have a hard time getting those jobs, you know. Um, he and doesn't really care about the dog with the cake. He doesn't care about the dog with the cake. I don't, but I'll do a good job if I have to do it. You know what I mean? And 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 that's the thing. Look, you know, what can I say? No, I, I get it. So so when you when you uh, what was your involvement with uh, Now You See Me? Was that an original or was that uh, a yeah, you know, that's an example of a, a friend of mine, a very good friend who's become who's actually a, a great person to talk to because he's a writer's writer. My friend Ed Reichcourt. Mm -hmm. Ed worked for like. Ten years and I did mentor him a bit and, and co-wrote something, mentored him, 
had a lot of years of not succeeding, a lot of years of not succeeding. And he had this idea for a script that at the time, I remember we were sitting in a car and he called it something insane, like poof or something like that. And he was like about four magicians who rob a bank in Vegas and in Paris from a stage in Vegas. And I was like, Ed, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard, right? Like, I, I was just like, don't bother me. There's no and, money here. There's no money here. <laughs> no, it was just utterly brutal, dark, personal film that I called Death and Love about horrible family dynamics and stuff like that. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And after I finished it, I was kind of in a place where I was like, holy shit, I don't know if I'll even know how to ever write another commercial script again. This is like a year later or something like that. And I was talking to Ed and Ed said, Boaz, I wrote the first 15 pages of this script. Fucking read it. Right. So I picked up Ed's first 15 pages and 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 I read them and I was like, ah, like essentially everything that now you see me became and very successful, right? And second movie and all that is based on that first 15 pages of Ed's, his concept. And I was like, Ed, this is a great idea. How did they do it? And he goes, and I was like, oh shit. Okay, oh, it's like that, huh? And I was like, I guess I better get in here with you, right? And And so I, I then got in with Ed and we basically fleshed it all out, but it was Ed's concept, right? And then I came in and I helped him figure out how everything would work. And we came up with all the solutions and then mythology and all that. And we wrote it. And, and, and in fact, it got sold. And it was interesting because we had one of those moments where they finally, after a few do- drafts, replaced us with someone else. And um, Ed was very upset. You know, he was hurt. And I was like, Ed, this means they might make the movie. And that's exactly, it's like what I was telling you before, right? Until they hire someone else to rewrite you, that movie is not getting made. Um, and uh, and they did, and they ended up making the movie. But Ed, Ed and I really created the concept um, and the first draft, and, and they took it from there. Did you, did, because it's a, I mean, it's pretty, com- I mean, did you go down the rabbit hole of magicians and how magicians do things? And like, I mean, you yeah, had, I mean, had to, right? Absolutely. Yeah, for the time that we wrote it, absolutely. Did you interview guys? An expert, on, an expert on all that stuff while did we you, were. Did you, did you call? Did you interview magicians? Did you talk to magicians? What kind of research did you do for that? Well, I mean, we do have the internet. There's that. Which, by the way, has made research a completely different experience than it used to be back in the day when we had to go to libraries <laughs> and call people up and all, all that stuff, which was an interesting experience in and of itself, right? It was much slower, but in some ways richer. Um, but yeah, there's the internet, and we also interviewed two or three magicians and blah, 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 but, you know, did our research. And went into that stuff. Uh, and of course, you took a couple trips to Vegas, obviously, just for research purposes. I think I've been to Vegas already. I, I don't know if we went there for that, but um, yeah. But that's right. Now, the film, you've directed a film called Max. Uh, again, I'm now I'm afraid to ask about any film that you direct. Is that that is that a film that you were like really passionate? Well, about? Max is a, is a film actually that it's a, it's a, it was sort of like me 
trying to make amends in a way for to myself for how I felt when I was doing Titans, where whereas I also found myself again in a position where I needed to make a movie. I had written a movie to sell with my friend Sheldon, an old friend of mine, um, who loves dogs, and I had some idea about a dog, and it was like he was like, "Come on, Boaz, we have to write this," and we wrote this movie and sold it to MGM. I had no intention of directing it or anything. I sold it. And about a year later, I found myself needing to do something. And the producer had actually, the producer called me up and asked me to take a look at the script um, that someone else had done some writing on and, and said, well, what are your thoughts on it? And I reread the script and I read our draft. And I was like, you know, I think if we can go back to our draft, I know how to make this movie and make it appealing. And I called him and I said, look, if you guys want me, I'll direct this um, as long as we can go back to our script of it. And they said yes. And I went, you know what, let me just try and have a good time, work with some nice people and make some kind of an appealing movie. Um, yeah. And that's, and then, you know, and that's then, what I did. And, and for everyone, can you tell everybody what Max is about? Because uh, a lot of people might not know what he's about. Max is a movie about what they call an MWD, a military working dog. Um, so it's about a dog that gets traumatized in Iraq and gets uh, his his handler killed, and then he gets adopted back into society by the family of the guy, the Marine that was killed. So it's about a, a traumatized vet dog who has to sort of like get his shit together uh, with this family that adopted him. Almost like an old school 50s, 60s Disney kind of a movie. Those days, those Disney movies had kind of an edge, you know, like when you watch Old Yeller or something like that. Oh. Oh. You're like, hey, he just killed that bear. Like that, those boars just gored him. Wait, that kid just shot three wolves. Like they don't do stuff like that. And, and um. the kid is still Old Yeller at the end. What the fuck? Like, um, yeah. Spoiler, those old... spoiler alert for everybody who hasn't seen Old Yeller. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. But like, <laughs> Family movies back in those days were like definitely a lot more hard bitten than they are now. Um, and and, and uh, anyway, so it was sort of like a, a callback to, to to like those fifties kind of like Disney Disney family movies. Fifties, just go back to the eighties. Remember Never Ending Story or Secret of Nim? Which one? Secret of Nim, the animated Don Bluth film. Oh, yeah, that was a little harsher. That was a little harsh and and Never Ending Story that killed the horse. And you're just like, I'm like, are you kidding? Like you never. I mean, yeah. they're freak, they're freaking out about the the Swedish chef right now on the Muppets. I mean, can you imagine? Is that the character that they say is a negative stereotype? Why they put the disclaimer to yeah. the Swedish chef? It's the Swedish chef. Yeah, the Swedish chef. Holy shit, man! I'm as lefty as you get, but <laughs> this is the one area where, like, I'm like aligning with all these whiners about cancel. Like, come on, people! I mean, what yeah. actual f? I mean, it's. I don't want to get into that conversation because that's a dark. That's a, that's a, but, but yeah, at a certain point, you just gotta go. Look, movies were made at a certain time. Shows were made at a certain time. Just have a conversation about it. And at that time, look, can you? I can't even imagine. Like I was watching uh, Clockwork Orange the other day, and the first twenty minutes of Clockwork Orange are in, are insane. In oh, yeah. In and I was remember because I, I, I saw it when I was a kid, and then I watched it again as an adult, and then it just it just reminded me. I'm like, first of all, what a genius Kubrick is, obviously. But imagine a film like that 
being released today. No, no, you you can't. People will lose their collective mind over that film. I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time is Ralph Bakshi. You know Ralph Bakshi? I don't. He made animated films back in the 70s, um, and he brought adult animation into the mainstream for a a minute before he burnt. They didn't let him keep going. But he made Fritz the Cat. Yeah, it was was Fritz the Cat guy. Yeah, yeah, which was based on our crumb stuff, but it's a great movie, but it is based on our crumb stuff. (laughs) Then he made two super personal movies that are, I think, that just some of the best films of the 70s. One of them is called Heavy Traffic. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of them is an exploration of black politics and identity. He was Jewish, but black politics and identity called coonskin, um, which is ferocious and one of the greatest animated films of all time. And you watch coonskin. And try, by the way, it ended his career then in the 70s, although could he you made it. Could you imagine now? Can you imagine if someone made that film today? And it's, it's a masterpiece. It's amazing. Um, so it's a different time, you know, and hey, maybe it's OK for a minute to absorb that, you know, um, to absorb this different time. But it does make for a blander stew. Oh, there's there's no yeah, 70s, was, 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s were much more interesting. Um, yeah, but by mid 80s, things started to go like, you know, but, but compared to today, the 80s look like compared to today. But yeah, yeah but, 80s look like the 60s compared to today, compared to the, like the 70s. I have a, by 84, 83, 84, things were like, you know, <laughs> starting to go down. I, I was just I, I was just, you know, it was the kind of movie that I was trying to write at the time. But I was just literally watching like one of my friends I'm, I'm say like. One of those, you know, 80 HBO stations they have or whatever, and you just flick through them and like Rambo First Blood Part 2 came on. And like back in the 80s, that was like actually an acceptable action movie, like where you're like, oh, yeah, Rambo, he's fighting. And you watch it now and you're I literally was laughing out loud the entire time. I mean, it's it's a porn film, basically. It's like this shiny, greased up guy blowing apart hundreds of people and and just walking around and and you're just like what am i even watching what is this no if you want if you want to go down that i enjoyed it i thoroughly enjoyed it but i was like it's 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 a relic of a different time a different mentality a different perspective like it's actually surreal the movie is actually surreal and at the time No one thought that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I think Rambo was that there was that Rambo, but then there's another film around the, I think came out the same year even that was even more than Rambo, which is Commando. It came out after Rambo. Yeah, it came out yeah, around the same time. It was like a year or two different. Yeah, it came out after. But Commando is even more surreal. I mean, they literally have cardboard cutouts being blown up in the scene. Oh, Commando's, Commando's hilarious. I mean, um, Rambo is a better movie in some ways, no, right? No, no, Rambo's a better. But, yeah, no, James it, Cameron wrote that. James Cameron became wrote that. surreal. The 80s yeah. became absolutely surreal. Kind of fun, anyway. <laughs> 
I got two, two old fogies talking about the good old days. Yeah, those, those weird ass movies that you're like, wow, we were actually trying to make those things back then. And now you look at them and you're like, what is that? I remember when, look, when I was, was during that time period of the 80, the late 80s and early 90s, I, 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 you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, Steven Seagal, they, they were the greatest things ever for me. And I remember Bloodsport being so good and so revolutionary when I saw The it. guy who wrote that is the guy I wrote Max with, my friend Sheldon. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? So, all right. So he wrote Bloodsport, right? I thought he Bloodsport. Wrote Bloodsport. Oh, it's amazing. I have to talk to Sheldon now. Um, <laughs> I gotta get Sheldon on the show. I gotta talk to him because I'm like, I Direct talk to Lionheart. Yeah, no, no. We, I, we I spent, about... I spent, I spent two months with Sheldon and John Claude in Hong Kong making, uh, doing rewrites on Double Impact. Okay, so now, so you see, these, these, why, have, why isn't this on your IMDb? I would be talking to you well, about it. Well, because I didn't get it. It was uncredited rewrite, but I was there. Okay, so you are now, okay, so now see, see how the, how the conversation has turned. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is no one's gonna watch this. I'm telling you. No, it's fantastic. No, <laughs> no it's, interest it's, to anybody. If you make your movies for you, I make these interviews for me. And if someone listens to them, fantastic. All right. So you're so you're in you're in Sheldon. You're in where's it? Paris, Europe, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong making double impact. Because I remember going to the theater, being double impact, and going that makes all the sense in the world. Absolutely, John Cross could do that. What, what, because John Claude was at the, was that, was that a universe? That was a universe. Yeah. He, John Claude was in the studio system at that point. He hadn't left yet. He was, he was working, I think at Warner's or Sony or somebody like that. He was working, but that was a big, that was a big release. I remember double impact. What was it like being on that set? Because it was John Claude at the height of his powers, you know, and, and Sheldon had just done Lionheart was a huge hit for Universal. Like, what was that like? I, I I thought it was fun. I mean, basically, I was living in Paris. Remember, I told you I left the, the movie business. I was living in Paris. Mm -hmm. I was with my younger brother. He had just gotten super sick. Right. It was winter. And Sheldon calls me up and he's like, Bo, we're making Double Impact in, at the time, I remember what it was called, it was based on the Corsican brothers and this old Alexander Dumas story about these two twins. And they ended up updating it into Hong Kong. And, 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 and Sheldon was like, and we could really use a few rewrites or whatever. Do you want to come to Hong Kong for a month and help us out, right? And I was like, Eris, do you want to go to my brother? Do you want to go to Hong Kong for a month? And he's like, yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. And I was like, let's do it. So I was like, yeah, man, let's go. And, and they, they flew me into this hotel. This was before Hong Kong turned back to the Chinese. It, it was still a British protectorate or whatever it was called. And... We just found ourselves hanging out with Jean-Claude, having dinner with Bolo Yang from like Enter the Dragon, Bolo yeah, from Enter Bolo, the Dragon. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, having dinner with Jean-Claude and Bolo and Bolo's family. And me and my brother were just like, oh, my God, <laughs> dinner with Bolo. This is fucking insane. I mean, I had already known Jean-Claude, right? Like I, I had been Sheldon and Jean-Claude brought me in to help edit, re-edit a movie called Cyborg, which was Jean-Claude's oh, second oh. I, which is just like total mess, and, and I cut my teeth editing, re-edit, helping to re-edit that movie. So I mean, I was friend, I was, I was friends with those guys, and and my brother and I spent a month, month and a half in Hong Kong, and just like, it was so much fun. We just like would it write, I would write a little bit in the morning. I'd go to that, like I'd try and do notes, and I was there when they auditioned all this, the stuntmen and all this kind, of, and it was. It was super fun. Like the culture clash of it all was super fun. 
I introduced Jean-Claude to John Woo's movies. He had never seen one before. Really? Yeah, yeah and, and like amongst, amongst us guys, like we had just seen um, uh, Better Tomorrow and A Better Tomorrow 2. I don't know if, if, if Hard Boiled had come out yet. I mean, if The Killer had come out yet. I don't think it had even come out yet. Maybe it no, did. It was, that was later, later 80s, if I remember. But certainly A Better Tomorrow and Better Tomorrow 2 had come out. And we were like, Jean-Claude, man, you've got to see this movie. And Jean-Claude saw the movie and is like, I have to shoot two guns. And that's why in, in Double Impact, there's a couple of, scene, a, a couple of scenes where he, where he shoots two guns. I had a great impression of Jean-Claude. It was a very good impression. Hey, blah, 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 blah. What do you think of this idea? Blah, blah. Hey, blah. <laughs> my conversations with Jean-Claude are like. Um, and uh, it was super fun. It was super fun. It really so, was cool. So basically, so your film school essentially was uh, Clint Eastwood. And uh, editing. Clint Eastwood and editing Cyborg. <laughs> that was a lot of my film school, actually. Editing Cyborg and Clint. That was before, and then and, and then Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Right. No, because I remember editing. I because mean, I remember Cyborg, and it was it was okay. Because I, I I am there's a that there's a I'm a time period that I am a Jocon aficionado. So there was Bloodsport, but before Bloodsport there was Black Eagle. Then came after Black Eagle, which he had a small part. Oh no, no retreat, no surrender. Then he went into uh, Cyborg. I remember Cyborg. At the yeah, you know, and by the way, I do have to take a little credit for this. Um, <laughs> he had just made Bloodsport. They right. were super excited about him, like like Canon Films, I think, or whatever. And they made Cyborg, and it was such a complete and total, it was visual, but it was such an utter mess. And they were going to basically just put it straight to video. Um Luckily, not straight to audio, right? But straight to video, and <laughs> audio. <laughs> uh, and Sheldon again. Sheldon and John Claude said, "Hey, do you want to take a look at this?" And I looked at it, and I was like, "Guys, I have an idea. If we can completely recut and restructure and like re-put like new dialogue on like scenes and da da da." And I just, since it wasn't my movie, I just went in there and went crazy. I flipped the film. I reversed it. I turned it upside down. I made sequences out of stuff that weren't sequences. And Sheldon and Jean-Claude edited in the other room, and we were all just editing away. Um, and then Jean-Claude I... was editing as well? Yeah, with Sheldon in the room. Like, Jean-Claude's a really smart dude. Um, and and, and we, were ed- we all, like, sort of re-edited the movie, and I restructured it, and they edited in the other room. Then I left. They reshot a little ending. And Pete, they looked at it, and they liked it so much, they put it in theaters. Mind you, it's not a classic, but it made money in the theaters. It made money and kind of saved Jean-Claude's career. Like, if that had gone straight to video as his second movie, he would have been in trouble. Instead, his second movie ended up getting a release, making a lot of money, and it just sort of took off from there. So I'm always very proud to have been part of helping Jean-Claude's career stay afloat at a time when it looked a little a little shaky. It was a little shaky. And, of course, as long as you have a split in there, which I still remember that split between the two walls, uh, it, it, in, the rain, in the rain, oh, it was good, 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 good <laughs> times, man. Oh, oh my God. The 80s. Um, now, real quick, I wanted to ask you about your new uh, project that you wrote uh, called The Harder They Fall. Is there anything you could talk a little bit about that? I know Jay-Z's a, uh, a producer with Lawrence on that. Yeah, well, my, my uh, mine and, and my friend James Samuel, um, who is – a mutant comes from music mostly. Um, you know, he's a songwriter and, a, and, a, um, he, uh, 
he directed a, sh a couple of shorts, a couple of his own videos, and um, he had this concept for this Western that he'd been trying to, to make for years. Um, and he asked me to help him with rewrite it. He had, he had written the original drafts, um, and it was filled with great ideas, but a bit unruly or quite unruly. And um, I basically helped kind of pair it into something that I think was more like makeable. Uh, and, um, and James then came in and rewrote on that. So we wrote, ended up writing that script together uh, based on his concept and, and, um, and they made it and they just shot it. It's, uh, it's going to come out on Netflix at some point. It's great cast. And yeah, it's an all African-American spaghetti Western basically. Um, but it's going to have like a lot of music and all, and he definitely has a vision and a style. Um, and yeah, he just, it's, he directed it and he, it's a huge budget first directorial film. I mean, unbelievable. But and again, he's taking those kind of chances. They're taking those kind of risks. And, and uh, I, I imagine it'll be fun. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That's awesome. That's very awesome. I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Um, what is the biggest mistake you see young screenwriters make? It's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm going to kind of not answer that question just in this sense, just in the sense. I don't tend to really focus on screenwriting in my ingestion of movies. I tend to think of it, I, I think of filmmakers. You know, I tend to think of filmmakers. Um, I never know when I see a screenwriter's name on a movie how much of their voice is in the movie or not. Well, right? let, me, let me rephrase the question. What were some of the biggest mistakes you made when you were first starting out as a screenwriter? Well, nothing's a mistake. You're learning. <laughs> okay. You know? You need to go. Through, so you're basically saying we've got to go through some of these hardships in order to become a craft. You got to cut. Yeah, you gotta, you're, 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 you're learning. I mean, you know, your process as a human being is filled with self-imposed barriers, externally imposed barriers, some of which you cross, some of which you don't, you know. Um, there's no mistake, right? Like, you know, like I could say, you know what, when you're writing a Hollywood movie, it's a mistake to take anything personal, right? But it's not a mistake. You just have to go through that experience, get your ass beat, and then somehow come out of it as a, either as a human being who can absorb that with a thicker skin or a deeper capacity to, like, handle things or not. But there's no mistake in it. It's, it's, it's just a process. So, it's a great non-answer answer. I loved it. That, that, that's my answer for your question. Um, what are uh, the three screenplays that every screenwriter should read? Wow, again, I don't really read scripts. Um, I, I, I see films, right? Um, three well-written films. Oh, my God. There's so many well-written films. Just pick three that come to your head. Three well-written films. Ingmar Bergman's Persona. Yep. Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, especially. Mm. I remember that. Yep. And Winter Light by Ingmar Bergman. So 
if there's in other words, if you want to see anything with a really well written script, watch a Bergman movie. That's my advice. Now, uh, what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? I have no advice. Make a movie. <laughs> cool. Good to just go make something. Write something, make something. Can't make a fucking movie. I mean, or, you know, I don't know. And I, I have no idea. I have no idea. The world is so different now. It's just it's different. so different from like I mean I I'm I'm still trying to stay afloat in the business, right? That's a different thing. It's like trying to stay afloat, and I feel like I'm trying to reinvent the wheel for myself every day. That that's the thing that you you mentioned before. With me. That's what's so crazy is that like I've been doing this for so long, and every time I finish something or whatever, I feel like I'm never going to work again. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, like right now, I'm kind of in that zone where I'm like, oh, shit, am I ever going to get another job? Like, oh, my God, am I ever going to make another? Like, and then one day you find yourself making something, whatever, and you're like, holy shit, I can't believe that happened. Like, I've always been really jealous of people that just seem to work and treat it like a job. Because I always think it's a miracle every time I get a job or every time I make a film. I'm always in shock. I'm always in shock, you know, but in terms of how you get in now, it's a totally different world. And what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Oh, my gosh. Gratitude. Mm. Yeah. Be grateful for when it comes. For everything. Gratitude to God, the creator, the universe, whatever you want to call it, for being a part of it. Not taking things personally, no matter what it is. Understanding that nothing in this universe is personal, even if it might seem like it is. Right. That's been the hardest and the most important lesson for me to learn. Well, I can, I know I can keep talking to you for a long time, uh, at least for three, three, four hours. But uh, I want to respect your time, and I do appreciate you. Thank being, you. And thank, thanks for having me, man. It was fun to talk to you. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. So thanks again Don't for uh, down the '80s rabbit hole. I'll disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Boaz for coming on the show and dropping his truthful knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, Boaz. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWatcher.com forward slash 665. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, Keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. 